to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello everyone and welcome back to Out of the Box Radio. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, and I am so happy that you tuned in today because we have a very, very special program for you. As you know, with Out of the Box Radio, my whole goal is to bring to you people who are doing something unique, something wonderful for the planet. We showcase a lot of different people who have products, services, who are doing something great for the world, and today is no exception. I am very, very happy to have on the program H.G. Tudor. Now, H.G. Tudor is a narcissistic sociopath. Yes, I said that. It's true. Who, as part of his growing awareness and treatment, has been writing about how he and his kind behave and what goes through their minds in order to provide people with insight and enlightenment. He shares his observations and his ongoing situation through his platform, Knowing the Narcissist, which is a daily blog available on Twitter and Facebook along with many, many books that are extremely popular, covering a wide spectrum of behaviors and how to deal with them. He lives and works in the United Kingdom, and as a consequence of the sensitivity of his professional position, he must maintain a veil over his identity, which we'll respect during this interview. And I want to say, HG, that I stumbled upon you on Facebook, and I, I was both repulsed and excited when I saw the blog and I was shocked at how many people had responded to your blog entries and how popular you are. But I'm so I'm so happy that you're here on Out of the Box Radio. Thank you again for taking the time to, to be with us. You're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Now, let's just the first question is, I get you, you know, this whole thing reminds me sort of of like the magicians who who tell the public how you saw the woman in half, you know, like I'm sure there's other (laughs) narcissistic sociopaths out there who are like, Hey, HG, what are you doing? Talk, talk, if you don't mind a little bit about the, uh, the birth of this. When did you decide to sort of come out of the, not the closet, but come out of, come out of hiding, (laughs) so to speak? Um, there were sort of two rationales behind that. The first was, allied to the fact that I really enjoy writing and I have always engaged in doing that and I used to write a little bit about some of the things that had happened to me and some of the things that I did purely for private consumption and then as a consequence of the desires of my family it was necessary for me to engage in a course of treatment And arising out of that, the discussions that I had with the two doctors that were engaged in that treatment was the suggestion that because of how articulate I am and because of my love of writing, that it would be beneficial for me to engage in doing further writing 
but to put it on a platform to enable others to interact with me. It wasn't done from the perspective of necessarily wanting to help other people, more a case of putting the information out there and allowing people to decide for themselves how they might use it. And it's interesting how you mentioned, Christine, at the outset, how you were both uh, repulsed and excited when you first saw it, because that is generally the reaction that tends to engender. Um, there is this, I can't believe I'm actually reading what people <laughs> listen here. Yeah. Quite, aston- quite astonishing. But all- also, isn't it fascinating? Yes. Uh, well, and, and it's a, I mean, it's a radio producer's dream come true because you are, you're, you're sort of, you're allowing people into the mind of mm-hmm. now, you know, of, of, of a narcissist. And now for people who don't understand, and, and I'm going to tell everybody, you have at one time or another come across someone with a narcissistic behavior or narcissistic personality. Okay. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who you are. I know, I know you said, no, not me. Yes, you, you've come across one or you might be one yourself. Now mm-hmm. for our audience who are not maybe completely up with the language, if you don't mind, can you explain what a narcissist is and are there different kinds, different levels? There are. <clears throat> Everybody has narcissistic traits. You have them. I certainly have them. Everybody listening to this will have them to a greater or lesser extent. Everybody's born with those narcissistic traits because as a baby, then a toddler and a child, it's a simple case of feed me, care for me, keep me warm, entertain me, 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 very inwardly. And then over time, as the way that people develop, they will, they will realize, or most of them do, that in order to get on with the world, one has to um, engage and interact with people on a give and take basis. And that will ultimately influence the extent of the traits that they have, along with some other factors, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later, which are more related to trauma and so on. Anyway, in terms of what is a narcissist, because everybody has these traits, you will know somebody who perhaps always likes to be the center of attention. But that in itself doesn't mean that they are a narcissist. It merely means that they have a narcissistic trait, one of which is perhaps grandiosity. In terms of if somebody's suffering from what is known as narcissistic personality disorder, they have to hit a number of uh, criteria to a certain extent uh, so that a diagnosis can be made. And some of those criteria include the fact that the individual is unable to empathize for, uh, for other people, um, has a uh, exaggerated sense of self, engages in, for example, magical thinking about how wonderful and brilliant that they are, um, that they um, have no sense of accountability or culpability for their actions, that they do not recognize boundaries, and so on and so forth. And a lot of narcissists are entirely unaware that they are one. And the way that I've talked about this is that they originate from three schools, if you will, the lesser, the mid-range, and the greater. And if you think of a spectrum, on your far left, you've got uh, generally empathic individuals who are kind and caring, honest and decent, who have few narcissistic traits, but they'll have some. Move a little further to the right, and then you'll have, perhaps if you could call them normal people, not particularly empathic, but nowhere near narcissistic, but again, they have some traits. 
And then we move further to the right and you start to engage with those who have narcissistic personality disorder. And those are what I call the lessers. They don't know what they are. And if you were to say to that person, you were a narcissist, they would completely deny it. And they would also react very badly to it. Move a little further to the right on this spectrum, you then have the mid-range. Those types of narcissists have an awareness that there's something not quite right about what they do. They have an awareness of certain needs, but they don't fully understand what they are. And then move further to the right, and you have the greater narcissist, which is on the scale of uh, sociopathy, which is essentially whereby there is an awareness, it's calculated, there is scheming, there is plotting, and those narcissists know fully what they are. But whether they will admit that to anybody depends on whether it suits their purposes or not. Mm. So you have those three different schools, if you will, which are along the scale. And then within those schools, you have what I've called the cadres. And those are, there are four of those, the victim, the somatic, the cerebral, and the elite. Briefly, the victim narcissist is somebody who is essentially looking for a mother figure. They're often a hypochondriac, or if they have a genuine illness, they'll play on it repeatedly. Typically, they will say, I have a bad back, or I suffer from depression, or a bad knee, often invisible illnesses, if you will. And they will look for somebody who is ultra-caring, who isn't particularly interested in the fact that the narcissist isn't good-looking or necessarily a high achiever, but will want to mother this individual. A somatic narcissist is obsessed with appearance, not only physically, but in terms of material appearance, drives a flashy car, lives in a large house, wears the latest designer gear. Cerebral is all about the intellect and showing off how clever the individual is. And an elite is a, is a mixture of both the somatic and the cerebral. So you have three schools and four cadres, and narcissistic individuals are drawn from all of those. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. Now, now, how does someone, because what I've noticed, um, and, and folks, if you've just tuned in, this is Out of the Box Radio, and I'm Christine Blasdale, and my wonderful guest is H.G. Tudor, who is a master narcissist. What's, what's, what do you prefer, what do you prefer to be called? A narcissistic sociopath? You can call me that if you like, or, or it sounds so. It's, it sounds so. It's, it sounds so mean, <laughs> but I, I just it love is, your honesty. That, that is the classification that was provided by, um, as I refer to them as the good doctors, and that's what they've told me. I, that I, my mission is. I refer to it more in terms of uh, by making it more accessible for people to understand. I refer to it as a greater elite narcissist. Ah. Okay. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> of course, but then of course people will say, "Well, you'd love that title, wouldn't you?" And of course I do. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. What I noticed when I stumbled upon your your page on Facebook, which is yeah. called "Knowing the Narcissist," by the way, folks, you want to check it out. Is so many. First of all, so many women. Mm-hmm. I I would say a majority of women. So many women were like, "Oh my God." Thank you, thank you. I thought I was crazy. I thought mm-hmm. I was jealous. I thought I was insecure. Well, because the narcissist that was in their life was telling them that, oh, you're just, you know, insecure. That's from your childhood. So yes. for for people in the audience, can you maybe give, because maybe they're in a relationship with a narcissist and they don't 
know it. What are some keys? What are some things that they should be paying attention to to see if they are indeed actually with a narcissist or someone who has narcissistic behaviors? Certainly. The whole point of why we're able to do what we do is because you never see us coming. If you did, you would naturally run a mile. And this is what makes us so dangerous. If you were to ask anybody who were walking past in the street, um, what do you understand by the word narcissist? I should imagine half the people would shrug and not understand the word. And then probably a good further three quarters would say, well, that's somebody who loves themselves, isn't it? But they won't actually understand what a narcissist is, how they appear to a person and what it is that they do. And this is why anybody who is entangled with our kind cannot actually believe what has happened to them. And it takes them such a long time to actually extract themselves from our grip. Now, many people, when they're first approached by us, we engage in the seduction stage. Very charming. We mirror your behavior. And the reason we mirror your behavior is because ultimately you are always looking for your other half. And that's why people talk about my other half, because you want to see yourself. I'm not talking that about exactly the same, but you want to find somebody who has very similar interests to yourself, has uh, similar moral outlooks, uh, likes the similar things to yourself. We mirror all of that. And so one of the first things whereby, as an indicator or a red flag, is if you're with somebody who just happens to like everything that you like and doesn't like everything you do not like, and it's astonishing how it just seems that you match on every single level, that is a warning sign. Now, the problem is, of course, for the individual, they will just think, isn't this marvelous? I've met this man, and he's completely into horse racing like I am. He likes the same kind of music as I do. He likes eating Thai food. And you'll never believe what. He's also um, it takes an interest in the works of the author Ian Banks. Now, the narcissist probably doesn't like any of that. But what he will have done beforehand, particularly if he's of the greater nature, he will have gone on the individual's um, social media and looked at what they post. And if he's noticed that that person talks a lot about liking to read Ian Banks, the Wasp Factory, for example, he will then proclaim that that's his favorite novel. And so he creates this match. And the problem is the individual will think to themselves, well, this is wonderful, and they won't see the danger sign, but it's a huge red flag. And there are so many of them that during the initial stage, for instance, we want to bind you very close to us. We want you giving all your attention to us because that provides us with fuel. Um, fuel or narcissistic supply is where you give us an emotional reaction. So all your admiration, your love, your happiness, your joy, your appreciation from a smile to you saying that I love you, all of that provides us with fuel. And at the beginning, we want this positive fuel from you. So therefore, we're lovely to you. We make you fall in love with us. We're very charming and we do it very quickly because we want to get hold of you as fast as we possibly can. We want to bind you close and that's so your focus is on us all of the time and nobody else can intervene. 
So we will try and isolate you from anybody we see who is potentially um, somebody who will cause a problem, who might say, hang on a second, this guy's told you that he loves you after three dates. Don't you think that's rather quick? Right. If somebody's talking in such terms, we will say, well, they're jealous, aren't they? They haven't got what you and I have got in our relationship. You don't need to listen to what they've got to say. And I do love you, and it has happened so quickly, but then that's because I've met my soulmate. So there are a whole string of things that you would see early on, lots of text messaging, bombarding you with texts. So the first thing that you receive in the morning is a text where I've taken a quote from some love poem and applied it to you. I'll ring you during the day to let you know uh, I'm thinking about you. I will send you gifts. I will take you to exciting places. And there will be this whole whirlwind of delight. But nobody will see the warning signs because it all feels fantastic. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like, you see, the problem is people tend to think, me and my kind are abusers. Let's not beat around the bush about this. We're abusive individuals. We abuse the notion of love. And then later on during the devaluation, we do awful and horrible things to people because that is the way that we operate. Now, lots of people think, well, an abuser, he's bound to be somebody who turns up who's a bald-headed, knuckle-dragging, aggressive-looking individual. No, he's not. In the same way as a fraudster who wants to con people out of their money isn't some greasy-haired, shifty-looking spiv, but a very charming, plausible individual who is well-dressed and knows everything to say. You can't see us coming because we are in and around you all of the time. And as you pointed out earlier on, Christine, anybody listening to this will know a narcissist because we are everywhere. It's spotting them. That's the that's the difficulty. And that's the beauty of the of your blog that I've seen. Again, it's available. I know it's available on Twitter and Facebook. And yes. you had mentioned that you had mentioned the seduction phase. Now, mm-hmm. in a relationship or whatever it is, when you, when you're involved with a narcissist, can you go through? Because this is something that I think is vitally important for people. Because the seduction phase, hey, anybody can get caught up in that. When somebody tells you you're the love of my life. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God, we have so many things that we like. We both hate country western music, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the phases, because this is where people this is where people lose their mind or they think that it's them. They get low self-esteem They're They think they're told that they're insecure or jealous. But talk about it because it's. This is where you also, as a narcissist, feed off of the, you know, you gain the fuel from the emotional charge, the emotional energy. But please talk about the next phase. After seduction, what, what happens after that? Following the seduction, we move into devaluation. So if you imagine I put you up on that pillar, I've made you feel like a queen, like a princess, and then all of a sudden you're thrown from that pedestal down into the dirt. And it's a very confusing experience for the victim. It's often done in an insidious fashion, a salami slicing approach through a huge range of manipulative techniques that you deploy. And many of those, for example, and you touched on them, is to suggest that it's the other person that has the problem, not us. We enjoy blame shifting. We enjoy projecting 
our issues onto the other person. We engage in what's known as gaslighting. So we try and alter your reality. So you start to question yourself. And what we want you to do is to be engulfed with doubt and emotion. Because if we keep you in that place, you can't think straight and you'll make bad decisions. Emotional decisions are bad decisions. We operate through cool, hard logic. You are caught in an emotional maelstrom when you're ensnared by our type. And what makes it worse, of course, is that for a number of months, maybe a year or two, uh, the golden period, as I call it, this is the period of seduction, everything was wonderful. You've not met anybody like this before. It was the love of your life, and then all of a sudden it goes wrong, and you can't understand why. So your initial reaction is to think, I must have done something to cause this. Now, the narcissist knows that you're mired in this doubt and will just keep exploiting that. And you, rather than realizing this is a disordered individual I'm dealing with, who one minute is all right with me and then the next is unpleasant to me, that can't be right. I'm walking away. That is how somebody would regard it with cool logic. But you don't. You think, why are they behaving like this with me? What have I done wrong? I want to make them happy. I want to get back to the golden period. So they will try even harder and they will stay linked to the narcissist. And the narcissist will just exploit this. So they will create upset and frustration and anger and fear because all of those are negative emotions. And this is one of the strangest things that people find about our kind is that even if you're shouting and screaming at me, that to me is fine. You can call me all the names under the sun. That doesn't matter so long as you're doing it with tears trickling down your face or with your mouth twisted in anger because you're providing me with fuel. And so long as I'm getting that reaction, I'm perfectly content with that. And a normal person would be, what, what are you shouting at me for? I don't like it and walk away. But to me, that isn't an issue. Mm. Now, talk about... Do most narcissists have several feeding opportunities at the same time? Because this is this is something that I have noticed with friends of mine who, and they have all said they well they just thought that their partner was was a cheater, and they said yes. you know this just this person is just uh, cannot be faithful, cheated on me, and and they go away from that relationship angry at the person for that but they don't realize how they've been manipulated. Now, talk about this the multiple relationships that a narcissist will have or the multiple connections that they will yes. have, the, the opportunities for feeding not just that one person. Yes. The situation is, is that with a, um, a narcissist, they need fuel from lots of different sources. And one can divide it into essentially three categories. There are primary sources, um, which is invariably your intimate partner. Not always, but most of the time it is. You then have secondary sources of fuel, friends, family, colleagues, and then tertiary sources of fuel, strangers, remote strangers, minions. So for example, the guy who serves you your coffee in the uh, coffee shop down the road would be referred to as a minion. A stranger would be somebody you get in a lift with who turns and smiles at you. 
all of those categories of people are regarded as appliances by our kind. We don't regard people as individuals because we merely see them as extensions of ourselves because they are there to do what we want. And there are essentially three things that we require these people to do. The first and foremost is to give us fuel. The second is to provide us with character traits, which I'll return to later. And the third is residual benefits, which is basically that person might provide a roof over, over my head for me. They may lend me money. They may give me a lift, etc., etc. But in terms of fuel, if, for example, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is reach for my mobile phone and there is a text message there from somebody I was flirting with the previous evening, their message may say, missing you already, HG, can't wait to talk to you again. That provides me with fuel. Now, you might ask, well, where is the emotion in that? Well, I know there's emotion in that because I know that the person has written that, has written it from a position of admiration and longing. So that creates fuel for me. I then get out of my bed and let's say that there's a person I'm living with. They, they've been up before me and they come in, they bring me a cup of tea and wish me good morning. That gives me fuel because they're doing something pleasant for me. The gesture of making a cup of tea for me is a loving and kind gesture. I then receive a telephone call from a friend who wants to congratulate me on the deal that I closed yesterday. That admiration gives me fuel. I get in my car and I drive to work and I cut up somebody and the chap in the next car to me um, flips me the bird and call, calls me all the names under the sun. That's negative fuel for me because he's angry with me. And all throughout the day, I will draw in this fuel from everybody around me, whether it's a smile, a look of appreciation, a look of anger, somebody kissing me, somebody patting me on the back. And it comes from all different sources. And the potency of that fuel varies dependent on who's providing it. And a person who is a minion who might wish me a good day as he hands me my cup of coffee, that just gives me a small amount of fuel. Whereas my intimate partner coming in and hooking me and kissing me and telling me that they love me gives me a huge amount of fuel. And therefore, often the narcissist will want to draw fuel from lots of different sources and that's why infidelity happens very frequently because there is a need to draw it from the primary source this is the intimate partner the spouse the girlfriend the boyfriend but at the same time we may as well take it from somebody else and take it from somebody who we are having an affair with because this enables us to triangulate those two individuals as well and in those instances if for example our partner has suspicions that we're playing away, they will get angry and upset about it. So we receive negative fuel from that person. And then on the other hand, the person we're having an affair with is loving and admirable, we get positive fuel from them. And if you imagine all through the day, we're looking to top up with this fuel from anybody and everybody. If, if you don't mind, let's, because the triangulation is, I think, one of the most, the more I don't want to say fascinating, but I, mm -hmm. I understand the drawing of the fuel because in the triangulation, all of the parties, other than the narcissist, all of the parties don't know what's going on. But can you talk mm -hmm. about what a master narcissist does with triangulation and how it affects the different, uh, the different people involved? Certainly. 
I will triangulate a victim with another person or with another person who doesn't even exist or even with an inanimate object. By way of example, um, let us say I am in a, a relationship with somebody and what I will do is I will keep mentioning somebody else's name. Um, let's call this individual Anne. And I will keep saying, oh, Anne did very well at work today uh, and she looked particularly nice. My partner will say, after a while of hearing me keep mentioning Anne, you talk about Anne a lot. My immediate reaction to that will be, <clears throat> I'm not allowed to talk about a colleague, am I? Mm. My partner will perhaps then respond by, no, I wasn't suggesting that. I will then go on the offensive because I know that they're suspicious and I sense an opportunity to get more fuel out of them. So I'll say, well, no, what are you accusing me of? Actually, I'm sick of you accusing me of things. I work bloody hard, you know. And I go there, and Anne's a very good colleague of mine, and she's very supportive of this new project. You're getting jealous. I can't stand your jealousy. Is it any wonder that um, other people are interested in me when you treat me like this? And you find that you've just made a relatively innocuous remark about the fact that I mention Anne quite often, and I've turned it into a full-blown argument, because I've triangulated you with Anne to get you to be either upset or angry with me. And you, threw the, and you, and you threw the blame on to the victim. Exactly. Okay. We, we are utterly unaccountable at all times. With a lesser narcissist, it's a knee-jerk reaction, it's instinctive. So, for example, if you were to say to a lesser narcissist, I know what you are, I think you're a conniving and manipulative individual, the lesser narcissist, being a, a lower-functioning individual, will probably turn around and immediately go, um, what are you using dictionary words for with me? Why are you trying to make me look stupid? And that will be their instinctive reaction right. because they regard it as a criticism. I know exactly why they're saying what they're saying and they're right in what they're saying, but I will still not let them accept that they're, I will still not allow them to be right because at all times I have to assert I'm in control. I'm the superior one. They're the inferior one. I do. I am not done too. Let's go further into the triangulation. Let's say as a master narcissist, you have one person that you are maybe in a relationship with or the person believes that they're in a relationship with you, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, let's say. Mm -hmm. And you, maybe you're not getting the fuel, that initial charge that you, you know, it's in the devaluation stage. How's that? We're in the devaluation stage of, of your primary source of fuel because you're still hooked in because you know that 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 person loves you or whatever uh, yes. is con is connected to you. Now you bring in another person who is attracted to you in yes. the triangulation. From what I've read in the blog entries, one of the one of the things that master narcissists do is they play one upon each other. So, in other words to the person that they're in the relationship with. Again, like you said, mention the other person, you know, bring them up in conversation so that in, in the victim's mind, the primary victim's mind, there's this person that, mm, do I have to worry about this person? I don't know. And then this is what's amazing to me. Mm -hmm. In the master narcissist triangulation formula, the other person, the new person, who is all excited about meeting you, doesn't know, you know, it's the beginnings of the throes of, of excitement. Yes. You will tell that person how the other one is 
jealous or insecure or yes. right. You you talk bad about the other person with the other with with the new feeding source. Is that correct? That's right. And we will vacillate between those two positions um, on a regular basis, perhaps within minutes. So, for example, if I was in a relationship with person A and we are in the devaluation. Now, understand, in the devaluation, it is not a case of each and every day meeting out horrible treatment against this person. There are periods of respite, which is done, is, which is an intentional act to keep them hooked on us. So... It's a little bit, if you like, dealing with a drug addict and not allowing them to have any drugs for five days ah, and on the sixth day giving them some. Perfect now, analogy. Perfect analogy. Okay. Indeed. Gotcha. Now, with person B, they may know that I'm in a relationship, but I tell them, it's the classic, my wife doesn't understand me, or my wife never lets me do anything, or my wife doesn't let me have any friends, or she doesn't listen to me, but you you knew person B, you're wonderful and you listen to me and I've never met anybody like this before and it, it's absolutely wonderful and thank goodness you've come along. So they feel special and because people invariably take people at face value, person B will accept everything that I'm saying and will think, well, here's this man who treats me wonderfully and isn't it awful that he's been trapped by this horrible wife yes. who doesn't let him do anything. Yes. I, want him for, I want him for myself. So I will do everything I can to pull him away. And then, after a period of time, I decide that person B is starting to not give me the fuel that I want. So I will return to person A and say, there is this lady at work. She will not leave me alone. She's stalking me. She's crazy. She might get in touch with you and suggest that there's something going on between you, me and her. Don't listen to anything that she says. I'm letting you know this because I love you. It's you that I'm married to and I want to be with you. So then person A thinks to themselves, well, thank goodness he still wants me. I've been worrying about that because things haven't been going too well between us as of late. And in a way, he is a handsome guy and very popular. So it's understandable that somebody else might be interested in him. But thank goodness he's warned me about this crazy woman. And uh -huh. then, of course, we just basically stand back and let the two of you fight it out between yourselves. And what you end up doing is you're too busy trying to get one over on the other person because you don't want to lose us. Whereas if you were able to make a cool and logical assessment of the situation, you would both sit down and say, wait a second, he said this to you. He said exactly the same thing to me. Do you know he said this about you? Hang on a second. He said that about you as well. What's going on? But you never get to that point until perhaps much, much later when the damage has been done because you are both fighting over this wonderful person, this illusion that you think makes you happy and you want it and you don't want the other person to have it. Wow. Listen <laughs> <laughs> to that laugh. <laughs> HG. <laughs> Folks, if you're just tuning in, that evil laugh is that of HG Tudor, who is a master narcissist and creator of a fantastic blog that you can access on Facebook. It's called Knowing the Narcissist. And it's, it's like I said, it, go there and just and read some of the blog entries. Also, HG, you have brilliantly so too, you have self-published quite a bit of your books. If people yes. are interested in that, just give them a, let, let them know how they can get a hold of um, some of the books. Uh, all the books are available on Amazon. Uh, at the moment, they're all electronic downloads, but there are plans in the next fortnight 
for the most popular ones to be brought out as paperbacks. Uh, what I've done there is, as I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, Christine, is that I do enjoy writing. And what I'm doing is telling you what it all is all about from our perspective. And there are books which touch on a variety of different subjects. So there's one that's called Fuel, which enables you to understand why essentially we do everything that we do. There's one called Fury, which explains why it seems that we're permanently angry under the surface and what drives that. And there are also books that have been written from the perspective of enabling you to identify um, the forms of manipulations that are used against you. That's manipulated in the Devil's Toolkit. And then also there are books which have been written to enable you to do something about it, such as Escape and No Contact and Departure Imminent, to name but a few. And the huge advantage that people have is that the subject of narcissism is, is naturally a fascinating one. And many of the books that are out there are written from the perspective of victims, which is entirely valid and provides that perspective from people who've understood what's happened to them. And there's a lot of value in those books because naturally it's written by somebody who's experienced it. But there are still questions that remain unanswered because they are not narcissists. There are then other categories of books which are written by people who have studied narcissism but have never experienced it. And again, there's value in what is written there. But often that's detailed in quite a scientific way, which is quite difficult for people to access and is quite difficult for them to link to their own experience. And then I've come along and what I've done is explain this is what I do and this is why we do it. And I do it using terminology that's not scientific because I am not a scientist. And couched in those terms, it enables people to actually understand why things have been done, why things have been said. And it makes it as clear as day, because one of the most important things for people is that they must understand that we regard everything from a different perspective to them. One of the most frustrating things for people that deal with us is how can he not see what he is doing is wrong? I've just explained it to him. I've put the evidence in front of him and he still will not accept it. That is because you're looking at it from your perspective. We look at it from a different perspective. So to give you an example of that, a victim may well say, this is the third time this week that you've come in in the early hours. I've kept a note in this book of when you've come in. Look, 1am, 2am, 2.30am, and each time you've come in smelling of drink and perfume, what's going on? So from your perspective, you're thinking, there is the evidence that this person has come in late. There is evidence of drinking and fraternizing with the other sex, it all points in one direction. From our perspective, when you say all of that to us, we're not seeing the evidence. All we hear is a criticism. And all we hear is you saying to us, you've done something that you shouldn't be doing. And because we don't recognize boundaries and we have a huge sense of entitlement, we believe we're entitled to do what we want, when we want and where we want. Oh, I, you know, I'm so glad that the work that you're doing on the blogs, I'm really excited that it's going to be eventually into a book form because 
you you are a wonderful writer as well hg i mean i think what you're doing is is extremely valuable for people i know mm-hmm. it's i know it's extremely valuable for your own processing and your own healing as well but right. I think it's so valuable, and I and I can't wait to to have it be paper. I because I, I like books. I love I like <laughs> the paper. I like to bring the book to you know into bed. I don't like to read on the screen so much because I'm always looking at the screen. I'm always on, uh, you know, the computer or social media. And that was going to my next question. Yes. For the narcissist, master narcissist, whatever level narcissist uh, someone is. Let's talk about the feeding frenzy. It's like chum going out to a shark, you know, <laughs> pool of social media. Do talk about that because I, in general, social media is an instant gratification for the ego. If you post a picture and you mm-hmm. look, you look, you know, handsome or beautiful, you'll get people saying, oh, you're hot, you're cute, you're blah, 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 blah. That's instant gratification. Now for a person with, you know, normal behaviors of yes there's ego involved and there is narcissistic uh, traits that we all have but talk about what that does or how narcissists use social media in order to get more of that fuel in the same way that when the romans built the roads they had no idea that cars would come along with them later on the early pioneers of social media had no idea of the formidable instruments that they were creating for the likes of us. Social media is a playground for our type. It allows us to reach, manipulate, influence on a scale never before. I, of course, remember a period of time, given my age, prior to the existence of the internet and text messaging and so on, and If I compare back then in terms of getting fuel as to how I do it now, it is far, far easier. Social media allows me, when I'm targeting an individual, to find out so much about them so that I can then use that information to ensure that my seduction of them is successful. I mentioned earlier on in the conversation about how there will be a trawl of that person's online presence. So information can be gained in that sense. Social media allows me not just to put out, if you like, one fishing line to get a bite. I can put out thousands. And therefore, that increases the chances of getting somebody hooked. And then once they are interested, social media allows me to undertake the love bombing that is a key component of the seduction. So I can send them a message on Facebook Messenger. I can tweet something to them. I can use it to keep tabs on when they've been on social media. I can keep liking all of their posts. I can like all of their pictures so that I am in and around them at all times. And then, of course, when the devaluation starts, I take it all away. They suddenly find themselves blocked only for a couple of hours to begin with. Again, remember the salami slicing approach. So I'll block them across all my social media and then I'll allow them back in. They're thinking to themselves, should I raise that with HG or does it make me look like I'm insecure? I know exactly what you're thinking because I've done it on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's done to unsettle and unnerve. It allows me to find additional sources of fuel while I'm in a relationship. It allows me to interact with people. It allows me 
to instigate smear campaigns against people when I'm about to cast them to one side. Social media is the narcissist's best friend. Wow. So Facebook is your BFF? <laughs> very much. No, you are, Christine. <laughs> oh, you're good. <laughs> you are good, my friend. Wow, yes. Well, and also you're gaining the fuel from the person who's been blocked, or let's say all of a sudden you're not liking their post anymore, and so they're mm -hmm. sitting there going, how come he doesn't, how come he's not commenting on my pic? How come he's commenting on other people's pictures but not mine anymore? I thought he, I... Ah, I see what you're doing. So you're getting that fuel as well. Very much so. As I pointed out earlier on, this is one of the peculiarities and perhaps one of the most insidious elements of it, is that I don't actually have to see you react to gain fuel. If I know that I've blocked you because I know you, I know that you'll be sat saying the things you've just mentioned there and you'll be worrying, you'll be upset, you'll be frustrated. And that will provide me with negative fuel, even though I can't see it or hear it. I know about it. And if you like, it is, a, it is akin to the puppet master sitting there, knowing that if he does this on the left-hand side, somewhere over there, there is a reaction. And if he does this on the right-hand side, there'll be a reaction maybe hundreds of miles away, but there's still a reaction. And that fuels our sense of omnipotence, because we believe in the construct that we create in our minds, that we are this um, all-conquering, um, powerful individual who is able to move people around like chess pieces on a chessboard, uh, that they are actors on a stage doing what we want. And social media is a fantastic way of enabling us to do that. And whereas, like, if... Uh... If I if, if someone like myself who's in a relationship with someone and I have my my cell phone and they say, hey, can I make, you know, I need to make a call. I need to call my mom or whatever. I have no problem handing over my phone to them and mm -hmm. and letting them make a call, let, letting them go through. I, they can even go through my phone because I don't have anything to hide. Now, with you, if let's say someone that you're in a relationship with or someone that even you are, you know, courting. Mm -hmm. If they picked up your phone, HG, what would you do? They wouldn't get near it to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, as, it's as simple as that. And it's not the fact that there's one phone. There are three phones, but there are two they don't know about. Ah. Mm -hmm. And then there's a password to get in? Always. And, of course, I'm entitled to go everywhere on your phone, your PC, your yes. laptop, because I am entitled. However demonstrating the legendary hypocrisy for which we're known, if you then say to me, well, you're able to look at my phone, and so can't I look at yours, I will, I will deny you that access. And I will quite readily explain, well, no, no you can't. Um, there's sensitive work information on there. That's probably a lie, but that is done to deflect you from wanting to look at it. And if you persist, I will turn it around with the typical blame shifting to say, why are you trying to control me? You're always wanting to look at my phone. Don't you trust me? You don't you What's trust the problem? Me. I hate it when you behave like this. And then I'll decide that I'll storm out of the room and meet out a silent treatment to you for a few hours. So you will feel upset and you will lose sight of the fact that you wanted to look at my phone and you'll focus instead on the fact that I'm not talking to you. What I'm, get, what I'm getting, what I'm understanding is that in addition to the need for the fuel, uh, mm -hmm. narcissists are 
brilliant liars. Yes. Like, uh, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a matter of the narcissist believing their lie. It's, it's, it's they know that they're lying, but it's to, it's for a, it's for a greater cause. It's like it's almost like it was it's OK for me to lie because I need this fuel source or I don't want to get into I don't want to talk to them about this. Right. It, it, it's exactly. it's all. Yeah. Um, what is the word that I'm trying to it's. Um, well, I always look at it in terms of the, the end always justifies the means. Ah, yes. Yes. So interestingly, in terms of telling lies, um, the lesser doesn't think that they are telling lies. They believe what they're saying because it is an instinctive and knee-jerk reaction. And even if you were to, even if they were to say um, that orange over there is black, and you were to say no, it's orange, and then a minute later the lesser would say, well, actually it's white, and you would say you said it was black a minute ago. They won't focus on that difference of what they've just said. They'll focus on the fact that you're trying to make them look stupid and go on the attack so that the lie that they've told is forgotten about. And people find that very strange to deal with, but it is that instinctive reaction. From my perspective, I know that I tell lies because I see them as self-serving in order to get what I need, which is fuel. And in certain instances, because I have spent a lifetime of telling these lies, they become a truth to me. But it has been as a consequence of the work that I've been doing with the good doctors, whereby it's increased my awareness that you understand the purpose of and the nature of the repeated pathological lying that we engage in. Ultimately, I would think that the life of a narcissist, although it's very busy um, and you're surrounded by a lot of admirers and people who want to be with you, I would venture to say it must be, it must be lonely. Or maybe not, maybe not, maybe not to the narcissist, but to me, from, from an outsider's perspective, it seems like a, a quite a lot. And I know, I know you build up walls. I know that you build up protection so that no one can come in, but at the same time, it, it, it must be lonely. I think, and again, this is something that uh, has been approached in terms of my growing awareness is the fact that, you're surrounded by people because you need to be surrounded by people to get fuel from them. But you do not allow them anywhere near to what you actually think and feel vis-a-vis ourselves. Again, with a lesser individual, there is this instinctive barrier that is put up to stop people getting close to them. I don't want people knowing, if you like, my inner sanctum. I don't want to admit them there because what I have put there, I don't want to contemplate. I don't want to allow it to um, see the light of day. And if I won't allow it, I'm certainly not allowing anybody else to come close to it. And that is why we build these barriers. Part of it is to keep what's in so that it stays in. And a lot of it is to ensure that you are kept out. So whilst I will interact with you on lots of different levels, in order to get my fuel, I'm not allowing you inside my inner sanctum. Mm. I think a question that is on a lot of people's mind is, is this something that developed from something that happened during childhood or were, or 
is a narcissist born a narcissist or um or a master narcissist born a master narcissist or does it does one become one due to life's circumstances and uh effects of others treatment of them through my ongoing journey i've noticed that there are different opinions with regard to this um although there does seem to be a greater preponderance to the belief that the creation of the narcissist originates from events in childhood and it's either as a consequence of being neglected as a child or treated as the golden child and where it's an instance of having been neglected the child isn't given the love and the affection that he or she wants and therefore creates this new personality in order to make people like them. Um, that's putting it very simply. By the same token, the child that has been treated in a sense as being the golden child has a huge sense of entitlement, has always been allowed to do what it wants and get its way, and in the same token then hasn't understood and developed certain core emotions um, in terms of understanding what proper love is about, what real joy is, what real happiness is. Those are emotions which are alien to me. What I feel is power that comes from the fuel. That's the main positive emotion that I experience. I tell people that I experience love, but it's not the love that you will feel. It's something completely different because what I have experienced and this is what is coming out of what I'm understanding with my work with um, good doctors, is that what I experienced as love when I was a child was nothing like what real love is. And I have a twisted and malevolent view of what that is because of the way that I was treated as a child. And my narcissism is a reaction to all of that. Essentially, you're regarded as in terms of your um, development and your emotions, it's become arrested somewhere around the age of eight or nine or ten years old. I am at present writing about this process of what happened to me as a child and how that has come to bear and what I am now because I'm starting to understand and learn the connection and that's forming part of a, a book which I don't know when it will be available, probably later this year. Um, but it's a very difficult process to write about it because I'm being asked to confront something that I don't want to confront. I think it's it's absolutely imperative that not only for your own for your own well-being and health and and uh, healing that you do go into that journey, although with with what you've done with the blog and uh, on Facebook, I think your redemption is right around the corner because it is so valuable to people. And even your interview with me today, you know, I know that it's maybe even perhaps stepping out of your comfort zone. You know, I didn't provide mm -hmm. you with a list of questions. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I, I said, this is going to be free flowing. <laughs> and so that we both are going on this journey. And, and I just, I, I think that, I think that what you're doing with this is absolutely vitally important not only for others, but as well for yourself. And uh, 
I just want to thank you so much, HG, for, for doing this today. And can we have you back on again another time? I, well, naturally, I, I love having an audience. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, I mean, there are many, many, even though we've spoken for about an hour, there, there is so much more that can be discussed. Um, there is, it touches so many areas of people's lives, um, and it, there are so many facets to it. We've only really scratched the surface in our conversation today, so I would be delighted to come back on again. It would be very kind of you to invite me to do so. Oh, I am definitely planning on it because there's so much that we can explore. Folks, my guest this hour has been H.G. Tudor, a master narcissist. And the blog that you can check out on Facebook and Twitter is called Knowing the Narcissist. And I am so excited. Okay, I definitely want you back. Well, before the book is published, but especially when the book is published, Wow, I am so I am just so excited that that you have come on to Out of the Box Radio. Thank you so much, HG. I really appreciate it, and our audience, yeah. and I know our audience does too. <laughs> You're welcome. And folks, also, if you would like to share this interview, because I know you will want to, if maybe you know someone who is in a relationship with a narcissist, or who maybe you suspect is has narcissistic behaviors as well, please, please check out the YouTube video that'll be posted. This program will also be archived on iTunes, and you can share it on social media that way. So I want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to H.G. Tudor. Go check him out at Knowing the Narcissist. Also, H.G., you have a website as well, correct? Uh, yes, that's the, that's the blog, which is narcsite.wordpress.com, and that's where you can read uh, the articles there, which are then sent also to Facebook and to Twitter. But on the blog... I must say that there is a lively arena of debate there with some very interesting people who approach it, their interaction with me in a respectful manner and who are wanting to learn and understand what has happened to them and to learn and understand what it is about my kind that makes us do as we do. And I'd encourage people to join that debate because of some very articulate and eloquent people there who have some excellent opinions and views of themselves, though almost as good as mine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you are. You are so charming. It's so fun. (laughs) Again, thank you so much, HG. And you are now in the inner sanctum of Out of the Box Radio. And I know that our listeners are going to be flocking to your, uh, your blog And we're going to have you back again real soon. I promise. I promise. I look forward to that. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And also, don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of Out of the Box Radio. Until then, always think outside of the box. (laughs) 